This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast quipping in the spaces between media events. Today we're talking about film riffing, featuring our special guest Mary Jo Peel, who's done this sort of thing for Mystery Science Theater 3000 and its various offshoots. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, left out of the robot roll call because I seem perfectly human. I'm Erica Spires, and I will heretofore call it Mystery Science Theater 3000 because now we have enough time. We don't need to shorten anything anymore. And I'm Brian Hurt. And in preparing for this podcast, now I actually don't know which one of my favorite movies are actually better rift. It's kind of an existential crisis, but we'll talk through it today. Now, before we bring out Mary Jo, let's just have a little initial discussion here. Just what is film riffing for folks that have never actually heard of this? How would you describe this? I'd say you're taking a property that already exists, and just like you would with friends, when you're watching a really terrible horror film and everybody's a little bit nervous and they're having a little fun and they just start making things up to make yourself laugh or to make commentary on the things that aren't so great about the movie or things that really surprise you. And these guys have, on with Rift Tracks, they've been doing it at a professional level rather than just for fun, right? Is that how you guys would describe it? Right, they're funnier than your friends are. Unless these people are actually your friends. And yeah, they have made a business out of making us crack up, saying out loud and thinking of those funny jokes that are funnier than your own jokes. Uh, The running commentary often going over dialogue. Right. So I feel like most people have heard of Mystery Science Theater 3000 who were alive, you know, conscious in the 90s when that was going on. Or maybe you're familiar with the new Netflix version. I think it's very normal to think that that's just a show, not a form. But no, there are multiple groups of people doing this. Mary Jo participated in several of them. She'll tell us about that. I guess I did want to address the sort of the moral question. I like the way you put it, Erica, but that sort of makes it seem like it only happens with certain kind of movies that are already, I guess, depending on which group is doing this, some of Mr. Science Theater was restricted to cheesy movies. But I guess the question is, what constitutes a cheesy movie? Is it one that is intentionally unpretentious in other words they would not mind being made fun of in this way because that actually seems kind of the exception what do you think that depends who you ask right (laughs) moral's an awfully big word to attach to that mark i mean is it a little disrespectful to be talking over someone else's work of art and even if it's campy the, the people who made it probably took it pretty seriously at the same time the rocky horror right is has this whole culture built on talking over that movie at certain times in order to enhance it. So I think those people who are offended by this form should definitely stay away from it and just leave it for those of us who know what's good. (laughs) Some filmmakers were so enamored by the format that they offered to make cheesy movies specifically to be riffed by Mystery Science Theater, which sort of defeats the purpose. No, they don't tend to want to take on these, you know, trauma productions, self-consciously campy things, because those kind of have the riffing, have the humor maybe already built into them. It seems a little redundant to do that. But how would you feel if you were Tommy Wiseau of The Room fame, who is just roasted? I mean, on the one hand, he gets to be famous, but he's just notorious. You know, this is not, of course, restricted to Rift Tracks' treatment of that, that you probably didn't even know there was one of the room, but there have been, just like Ed Wood, a whole film making fun of him and, you know, a whole industry coming out of that. Yeah, it's weird. If you have seen the movie Ed Wood and you know how seriously he took that, then it, it really makes you think differently. Originally, I was thinking when we talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000 in particular, 
they were watching a lot of terrible B-movies from, what, the 1950s and 60s. A lot of space age stuff, terrible horror movies. And we can look at that now through our current lens and say, oh my gosh, those were clearly B-movies. Those are terrible. But that was somebody else's dream, I suppose. And I think I would personally have a really hard time doing it professionally. I think that's why I have a hard time being a critic of, of any sort on this show is it because I know that people have good intentions. It doesn't mean that I have to enjoy it, but I want to try to respect it. However, I think comedians, a big part of what comedians do is riff on everyday life. So why not films? And, and I don't think they're wrong for that. I, I just think you have to have the right constitution to be ready to be called out if somebody gets upset with you for it. I guess the extension of that is, can you enjoy a film that is riffed that you actually enjoy without the riffing as well? That there's something, I've had folks that I've talked to who are suspicious of this genre say, okay, I understand if there's this really old film and it really, nobody would even watch it if it wasn't in this format because it's so bad. But if it's something like a Star Wars movie or a Star Trek movie or any the number of other action things that Riff Tracks has covered, is there a conflict if you are somebody who actually enjoys those movies but yet feels that it's okay to talk over them and point out everything that's wrong with them and all that. You know, I think may have some ideas about riffing is our fabulous guest. We've spoken way too long without talking to, so we should bring her into this discussion. Welcome, Mary Jo. Thank you. How are you guys? Doing good. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. And where are we speaking to you from? Minneapolis. Okay, that was the wrong way to ask the question, but you answered it the right way. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I don't know where you guys are. <laughs> I know you're, I think you're in Wisconsin. Yes, yes. I'm in Minnesota, if that was the question. I'm in Minneapolis. Yeah, I can see, uh, I can almost see your house from here. <laughs> this is a topic that I've been preparing for, for many years. And then I dragged Brian, who I've known for a long time, into seeing some of these things with me. Erica, was this a little new to you? I grew up watching Mystery Science Theater, but Riff Tracks to me was new. I remember the first time I said something to Mark about it, and he's like, well, it's the same thing. It's new. It's the new version of it. So that to me was different. And learning actually who you guys are, those of you who are riffing, putting a face to the voice was new to me. Yeah. So Mary Jo, you're the straddler that you are in the original Mystery Science Theater and you're in... Oh, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that. <laughs> You're in the Joel Hodgson offshoots and in the Mike Nelson Riff Tracks offshoots. Do you just get along with everyone? Can you give us a little sort of introduction of like where you're at with this thing? Were you out of it and then you got sucked back in? Or Would that make me a utility player maybe? So Riff Tracks started way back when and not long after that, Joel decided he wanted to do a live show with Cinematic Titanic and that was Trace Bilyeu, Frank Conniff myself and Josh Weinstein and Joel. So we toured for several years doing that, doing a live version of it. And then after that wrapped up, I did a couple of riff tracks, maybe two with Mike and one with Bill Corbett in the meantime. And then a few years after Cinematic Titanic wrapped up, Bridget approached me and asked if I would like to team up with her as part of an offshoot for riff tracks called Riff Tracks Presents. Which I guess technically is sort of anybody else they want to have under the brand. But now it's mostly you two. Yeah. And which of these formats 
Well, let me ask it this way. Is there one that you just have a, a greater comfort with or you think is kind of the best way to be funny or each has sort of their own thing? And boy, I almost said MST3K and Erica would have gotten mad at me. Mystery Science Theater had the shtick around the riffing and riff tracks is just the riff tracks. And then the live shows are their thing. Do you have a preference? If someone could just say, you get to do this next thing and you get to pick, what would you choose to do? Oh, that's a really good question. I loved doing cinematic Titanic. I came up doing stand-up comedy, so that response, that interaction with the audience, I was kind of weaned on it. It was so much fun. I had so much fun traveling with those guys and doing it live and meeting fans. I mean, to hear that response in an auditorium is really a high. All the same, doing riff tracks, I have so much fun with Bridget. We work really hard. We work on the scripts. It's really nice to collaborate like I did with Cinematic Titanic. I didn't realize that that was such an important part of my creative process. And so I really enjoy that. I have to say that I'm not really much of a comparer of things. I'm just in the thing that I'm doing. I love doing Rift Tracks. I'm so lucky to be able to do it. And I loved doing Cinematic Titanic. And when I get to do the live shows with Rift Tracks, sometimes uh, Bridget and I will do a bit or do Sketchfest. I love it. That's how I came up, doing live performance. I'll just mention to my co-host that Mary Jo just said I asked a good question. So I'm off the schneid now. It's up to you two to carry the show from now on. I'm punching out. As a stand-up, you know, it's not like there's one Oh, Lenny Bruce. And everybody's just imitating. Oh, you're one of those Lenny Bruce imitators. Like stand up or other art forms do not get centered around one property in this way. Are we going to get to the point where it's not implicitly or explicitly MST3K branded that this actually becomes a portable art form? Have you sought out other people doing this kind of thing? I was looking around YouTube myself. There are several, but they all seem to be MST3K fans. Are you saying that it will be a standalone thing without being able to trace its provenance to MSD? That's what I'm wondering, whether we're going to have to wait like 50 years for that original origin story to be lost, or whether this is just going to be something that stands or falls with the group of you when you die. Oh, no, I already think it's headed in that direction. I think more and more, less and less, people are getting away from whence it was born. I guess I've heard more of these things when I'm just looking around YouTube, like on video games. And I think the idea of actually scripting it may be unique to your lineage, you know, people that are directly influenced by that. But of course, just rolling some media and especially a video game that you can kind of control the pace of it, but even films and then talking over it, like that should be the most natural thing in the world. Like there are DVD commentary tracks. (laughs) There were everywhere. Yeah, and there's a Woody Allen film, and there's another film that definitely you see that Mystery Science Theater was not the first to do that idea. People have been talking back at the screen forever and ever. I think Mystery Science Theater just capitalized on it and managed to package it right at a time when people were ready to embrace that idea. Well, it's right around that time of the 90s, right? So everything was weird right then. Like... We had weird music videos and weird music and weird TV. And it was a bridge into what we have now in a way. But I I think the world was open in a certain way, as we've seen with some of the musicians we've had on here for something a little bit different. And how smart you guys were, or, you know, the founders were to pick something which is probably 
I don't know how much it costs to get the rights to show any of these old films, but it couldn't have been that expensive, I would assume, because there be movies from, you know, right. long ago. That's how it started, right? right? Yeah, and I couldn't give you actual dollar amounts, but I know that that was part of the charm and part of the saleability of this show was that it was so cheap to produce. I'll try not to fawn over Mary Jo as I say this, but Mark, I think one of the reasons this hasn't been quite so portable is that anything that involves comedy is really hard to do in a way that isn't, if it's not great, it's just terrible. And, you know, you could do drama poorly and it's watchable, but... People who try to riff and fail, you don't want to be there. You should leave some things to the professionals. And I I think this might be one of them. Well, I think you're talking about the YouTube videos where you see quite a few groups doing it. I wonder if, and this is not to cast aspersions on anyone, I'm all for people pursuing their creative outlets, their humor outlets. But I think the thing about Mystery Science Theater, Rift Tracks, Cinematic Titanic, and all the other iterations is that it appears easier than it is. And I have worked with Master Pancake Theater in Austin, Texas many times, and those are guys who can do it off the top of their head. There is some preparation. They are wickedly funny. They are wickedly sharp. They have an audience that loves them, and rightly so. And I think they're an exception where it's not strictly off the cuff, but they're just on top of it. And there are a lot of groups, I think, like I'm saying, it's not as easy as it looks. Bridget and I spend hours and hours and hours on a script. I know Mike, Kevin, and Bill do too. Cinematic Titanic, we worked so hard on those scripts, and then we made it look like it was off the cuff because we know how to work with each other. We can riff off each other. No, I think that's great. That was something I was really surprised at. I just figured it was all improv all the time. And it's easy to strike gold, I think, once or catch lightning in a bottle, whatever you want to say. Like you might have a great riff one time, but to continue doing that over and over as an improv would be really, really difficult. So do you comment from a background where you feel more comfortable scripting something? For yourself? Oh, yeah, I'm terrible. As witnessed in this conversation, I'm not very good at on my feet. I really get up in my head too much and just start overthinking things. So once something is scripted for me, at least I have a roadmap, whether it's doing stand up or riff tracks or whatever it is, then I can deviate from that if I'm so inclined or I can feel the energy. And am I right that the first pass at this is? Probably, I guess I heard with Cinematic Titanic, you guys, there are five of you and you're all around the country that you're watching the film and kind of, okay, at five seconds in, here's, and then, you know, writing on a piece of paper or there's some sort of electronic document or something that then these things get combined and then you workshop them together as opposed to turning on a recording device and taking as many passes as you need. Oh, which is what we did in Mystery Science Theater. We watched it all together in the writing room and somebody took notes. But Cinematic Titanic, we were all in different locales. And this was before Google Docs. So we didn't have a shared document that we could each work on. What we did is we did the time code. We did our section of the script, I think. I don't think each of us wrote the whole movie. No, I think we did all right the whole movie. Then uh, we had somebody combine it in an Excel spreadsheet by the time code. 
So we could see all the jokes offered for one time code. And then we divided it up to edit it down to what we felt like was the right joke. But we didn't actually rehearse it. I think we rehearsed a couple of times on the phone. But we didn't have Zoom or anything, so we couldn't necessarily, it was a harder process. We might be on our own scripts, but it wasn't a shared document. And of course, now all that has changed amazingly, so. It's changed, but really, comedy does get done with Excel, still. (laughs) (laughs) It's a known, that's their brand, right? (laughs) The shorts I found to sort of people who are not already interested in this, seem to be much easier for me to foist on someone, you know, not just because that they're short, but just because of, I don't know, the character of it, something about that, you know, that's what I show my kids more than I can't get them to sit down and watch a whole, let alone a bad movie. Like we did Twilight. We could do something that may be a movie that they would watch, but shorts, easy to sell. Many people have said that to me, that they're able to sink their teeth into a short easier than a movie. And I don't know if it's these shorts come out right away with their premise. They're so goofy because most of them uh, are teaching some sort of lesson, a lot of them old school lessons. I don't know why that is. What do you guys think? Why are the shorts so appealing to people? I think you're right in part that they get to their point because no one's trying to pad out a 90 minute movie or however long. It's just as long as it needs to be. But I think there's a profound earnestness to them. Nobody is saying, well, I'm going to make this movie, but what I really want to do is make The Godfather, but I'm stuck making this Roger Corman movie. And it's not always even movie makers making these movies, right? It's the ham board or it's whoever. And they think they're really communicating this thing that needs to be communicated. And it's like, yeah, you deserve whatever you get coming. From my perspective, for me, it's like three in the afternoon dose of oxygen sometimes when I just need something that I know is going to be silly and it's going to feed my spirit and I really don't have time to get into something longer and a short is just perfect. Yeah, I think definitely there's things are getting shorter and shorter. You know, TikTok is now the big thing with this quarantine. Everybody's like wanting to put a TikTok out there and they're so quick and easy to digest. Now we have Quibi, of course. Right which I haven't gotten into, but I hear they're tiny stories. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not into it either. I prefer the long form movie. I just think there's so much more to draw from in that. And you can really develop a a relationship with your audience with that. And Mark, you had mentioned something in our notes and our discussion about what it takes to be a successful riffer. And part of that might be related to the inside jokes and how you relate to the audience itself once they get to know you. That's one of the questions that with Mystery Science Theater, having the sketches in between sets up so you know who these people are. In fact, you can even see the puppets, you can, you know, doing their things. I'm not sure, you know, I was able to introduce riff tracks to my kids without them ever having seen the original show. And then, oh, no, here's a Bridget and Mary Jo one. Well, I don't recognize those voices. And then, you know, it's just like listening to a podcast. You kind of, you listen to enough of it, you get an idea, but it's not hitting you over the head in the way that like, here are the people, you know, I know even in the pre-riff tracks that they did this, the film crew, just about five of them, that let's have skits to show you who these guys are so you can connect with them. I feel like Mystery Science Theater, because it was a new format on the airwaves, needed those characters to grease the skids or have an on-ramp for people. 
that there was a situation imposed on them where they had to do this, obviously, in the narrative of it. When we started doing Cinematic Titanic, we came up with a framework, but then we abandoned it. When we started doing live shows, we just abandoned it because we felt like, and I feel like Rift Tracks came to this before Cinematic Titanic, we felt like people already knew the concept. So they didn't need a framework. They didn't need to be handheld. We were able to dive right into it. And I think the narrative served Mystery Science Theater. I also feel like Griff Tracks and Cinematic Titanic being free of it was really helpful too, really freeing. What was it like to be able to suddenly riff huge, big budget, well-loved movies? This idea of riff tracks were, and I apologize if there were some in Mystery Science Theater that were bigger than I realized, but I, I don't get the sense that there really were. But to suddenly have riff tracks for Star Wars movies and things like that, it's a really different kind of thing, isn't it? Bridget and I haven't done any of the big blockbusters like that. So I don't know how I would feel doing that. I know that when I was doing Master Pancake in Austin, we did one of my personal favorites, The Sound of Music. And the thing is, you can always find a way in, I think. Some of the classics, I don't know. Like I say, I haven't tried to do any of the classics. I know Mike and I did uh, the, oh, what's her name? <laughs> you know who I'm talking about, Mariah Carey. The classic Glitter, yes. I, I watched that. <laughs> And I, don't, I can't remember, was that a blockbuster or not? No matter. It was so stupid that we had an on-ramp for that. I think you might be downplaying The Sound of Music, that little-known movie. <laughs> I mean, you said it's one of your favorites, yes? I mean, It's super corny. It's super over-the-top. It is very much of its time. 1965, very hopeful, very earnest, very overproduced. I love the music. I love it. I still found a way into it. Do you watch it differently knowing that you're going to riff it? Yes. When I am watching a movie that I have to riff, you get so granular that for me, I lose track of the plot. When I am recording it with Bridget, sometimes we'll have to stop because I'll forget where I am because I'm realizing there's a plot point. Like, oh, that guy is killing that guy. And Bridget and Kevin, who records it for us, give me kind of a bad time because if I stop saying stuff, Kevin will stop the recording. And he said, you were watching the movie, weren't you? Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't get this part. I didn't get that part. Even though they're really dumb, bad movies, I get lost in them. Yeah, so the Nazis rolled into Austria. I got it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that I came up no. with. This is before I even you know, heard of riffing, but it's the, these older movies where I'm taking a 10-minute section because we divide it among ourselves, and you're stopping every 10 seconds. It's very fragmented. Do you guys record separately or are you together in a room? And if you do record separately, how do you keep that fresh? We're recording together, but the past couple of movies we've done, we're recording from our homes. And what keeps it fresh for me is having such a good rapport with Bridget and just trusting her funny. And I can hear her saying a lot of lines. So I hear that in my head and respond to that because I just think she's so funny and I enjoy her as a person and a comedian. So I'm very much in that track. I see the lines, I can hear her saying it, 
And that's what keeps me engaged. It's just hitting that line, trying to hit it at the risk of repeating myself. Well, I personally love your accent. It's not strong. I don't have any accent. Not at all. What? I don't have any accent. Some of the videos I saw, I was like, oh, this is so sweet. I love it. Isn't that awful? Like, but I get it. Like, I'm from the Ozarks, so sometimes I definitely have an accent and sometimes I don't. There's something about that northern Midwestern accent that feels relatable, even though I'm not from there. I try to standardize whatever accent I have. It, and it makes me laugh because when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I, was, I used to watch Father Knows Best. And the wife had a very patrician accent. And I was so self-conscious about my Midwestern accent, my Minnesota accent that I heard all around me that when I was in fourth grade, I started affecting that uh, patrician accent. Like I would say to people, would you care for a piece of gum? You know, just not quite British, just, you know, Boston Brahmin. (laughs) Some of what, again, to circle back why the shorts are appealing is because we're just making fun of the past, that those things are even more so, there's only so many times you can say, oh, that's so 70s in a movie. You know, it's it's an hour and a half of stuff. But, you know, where the whole thing is just such an anachronism, like why they're doing this in the first place, why they're doing it this way, the fact that this thing would be shown in schools or used as an industrial tool. I think that's a really good point because there's such a difference in the time period the 70s, 80s, those older, those younger, older movies, there's a little bit more of a touchdown there, a little bit more relatable. But you're, you're right. The older, the black and white shorts are such an anachronism. It's so different. It's so stark in the way that they present mores and attitudes that we can make fun of it more. We can get a foothold in making fun of it. All right. I have been waiting to rip into Mark for something, and I'd like to do it in uh, Mary Jo's presence and have her back me up on this. So I'm going to frame this in a, as a question to you, Mary Jo. All right. So say someone needed to prepare for a podcast and he, he or she, but let's say he needed to watch certain movies in order to do it. Do you think that watching the riff track version of that movie is really an acceptable method for, say, watching the, the uh, Star Trek movies? Have you been much of a consumer of those things? I guess is partly why he's asking. I'm not sure I know what the question is. Are you Mark, saying that if you Mark have to it. educate yourself on, say, the Star Trek oeuvre, would the unrift version do versus the rift version? Would the rift version make any sense as the way to watch it <laughs> if you were trying to educate yourself? You're still getting the plot information. It depends on what you're trying to educate yourself for. Have I gone overly pedantic <laughs> in, in, in the answer you desired? No, you just came down on the wrong side. <laughs> The wrong side. Uh, Well, you didn't come down on my side on this because I would like Mark to maybe get a sense that Wrath of Khan has some moving moments, but it is truly impossible to get any of the dramatic thrust of a movie when there's all this great stuff happening just trying to make me laugh the whole time. Yeah, poking holes in it. Yeah, I can see that. All right. Well, this didn't go the way I wanted, but I'll live with it. That'll learn you. Well, it's a risk. (laughs) You walk out there, something can happen to you. I used to, with the riff tracks, always insist, even if it was like Rain of Fire, this terrible, like, I will rent the movie, I will watch it straight through to experience it as it was meant to be experienced, and then I will watch the commentary, you know, immediately 
during my day or two days that I'd rented it from Blockbuster. Blockbuster? And how much time do you have? What? I'm telling you, we do one of these pretty much every week, and he watches and or listens or reads to everything associated with it. I don't know how he does it. That's not a good thing. (laughs) That's not for the public to hear. (laughs) No, it is. It's kind of incredible. I really admire people who drill deep. Yeah, well, I was trying on this to get a flavor. Like, I've never, like, say, say, tried to get a taxonomy of the jokes. And I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, you do so many of these. Do you get to the point where it's not just like, what's a funny thing I can say here? But, oh, here's a reference spot. Here's a, I can act in unison with the person on screen. Like, I don't know. Do you think in terms of typologies of jokes? Oh, we've already had too many of those references. We got to put in some more, uh, I don't even know the other types. (laughs) You tell me. Oh, yeah, to a degree. I think it's more uh, instinctual. But when we go back over it, we are aware of if we've made similar jokes in that particular movie, or if it's a running pattern in all our movies. So we try to be super aware of that. And each moment, it's hard to say. I don't know that we could break it down because like I say, it is instinctual. What is it calling for? What is the most visual thing? We try to put ourselves in the shoes of the viewer. What are they going to connect with? What the person is saying, what the dialogue is, or what the visual is. Sometimes we want to point out a visual. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but there is no standard for how we write the jokes. It's what it calls for. We go back and we, we say, we've done this a lot. We've done a lot of TED Talk jokes. So let's back off those. That makes sense to me. But one thing I have a question about is, are there certain standards that you set for yourselves of like, this is going beyond the line? Particularly, this made me think about it. There's a New Yorker article. It's by Tad Friend called Color Commentary. And Joel had said, he's the creator, you can sell an audience on Snark but they'll get tired of it. Our idea was always just that we are the perfect companions to watch a bad movie with. And I think that's a kinder way to put it. And I, to me, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to make fun of it and poke nasty holes in it the whole time. It means that we're going to have a good time and have fun with it. Are there certain standards that you guys have set for yourselves to keep it like a, a friendly jab or no? It's one joke at a time. There are a lot of jokes we did on Mystery Science Theater that I think back about and I realize, oh, that was unnecessarily harsh. That was really taking a pot shot at someone that was punching down. Now, I think we're much more sensitive to it. I think my mindset has always been that we are teasing the movie and a lot of them are... You could have a whole forum on this. A lot of them are bad enough where you can sort of rib them. I sound like I'm 90. A lot of them are very earnest. And that's why a lot of movies that are deliberately bad don't work because they have to have some earnestness to them. If they're too self-aware, that doesn't really work. Snarky came in, the word snarky came into use several years after Mystery Science Theater started, if I remember, and or common usage. And it always kind of bothered me because I never felt like we were snarky. I felt like we were your companions for the movie. I mean, I was a movie buff since I was five or six. And a lot of these movies I didn't realize were so bad. 
there was just something off about them. Like, oh, people believed this. So that was a really interesting piece of it as I started doing mystery science theater. Oh, this is bad. I'm not the only one who didn't get it. I do see distinct ideologies kind of coming through across the various iterations in terms of how mean you can get and what the purpose is that if, you know, we're just being companions for the movie, right? The Joel perspective, then the riffs don't have to come that fast. It could be pretty leisurely. I recall what really got me into Mystery Science Theater, you know, maybe by the third season or something, is just this Zen-like stake that you had to put yourself in. You know, you really had to concentrate to hear what was actually being said, often with terrible sound in the movie, and you're only going to get 70% of the jokes maximum. There are all these references to things, you know, I blame Frank, I think, but some, you know, definitely you had some folks on there with an encyclopedic knowledge of film you know, that we're making these references to things from the 1940s. And okay, maybe I'll stop and look that up. Or, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's even within the Rift Tracks thing that you and Bridget have established this new, you know, more interacting with each other as friends. And, oh, I'm really afraid that the person on screen will mess up her dress. Like these kind of comments that the others could not make, you know, partly just for gender reasons. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I think both Bridget and I have more of an empathic touch in putting ourselves in the the actor's shoes or the the character's shoes. So we really play on that a lot. And that is really how Bridget and I are. And that's where a lot of our comedy comes from. Yeah, I guess any sort of thoughts about how just developing that chemistry of what is the pacing going to be? I actually found a site that went through all the old Mystery Science Theater episodes and this guy counted up how many riffs per minute so that you could look for any given episode, there's a spreadsheet. People are crazy. Excel, I told you, it's all Excel. <laughs> How do people have all that time? I mean, I ask that as a person who just binge-watched all six seasons of Bosch, so I guess I shouldn't like be surprised. That is just fascinating to me that someone drilled that deep and uh, was that specific. That is really interesting to me. So you haven't computed your riffs, your riffs per minute. This person that didn't, I'm not going to extend. I think it's these people that like just see that MS33K was a, a discrete series of seasons and this is all they get. So like, Oh, I'll just rewatch one every once in a while. And you know, it just becomes something where you've seen the Catalina caper five times or whatever the, I have never gotten to that point. I rewatched a few for this time. I underestimated with so many jokes. I think I've gotten a little spoiled by Rift Tracks because I think that you guys have gotten so that it's more consistently funny minute to minute as opposed to I'm entering this Zen-like state of listening to all the references. And it's not that I have to laugh at it. If I had to laugh at even most of them, it would hurt. It would be exhausting. Interesting. Yeah, I know that when I first started at Mystery Science Theater, I was so intent. I mean, you know, Mike and Kevin and Trace and Frank were all so incredibly smart. I felt like I really needed to keep up. So I think I went overboard in making references and not jokes. I think maybe that was just part and parcel of what MST was at that time. And as I've gone on in my riffing career, For me, personally, it's just more important to make a joke. Like the reference might be in there, but the thing that Bridget and I will ask each other is, is that a joke or is it a reference? And maybe it is a reference and maybe we're okay with that. 
I used to refer to the whole thing as free association theater. I'm going to go watch some free association yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah, right. Just like as a mind-expanding thing. It's not humor exactly. It's it's more sophisticated than that. I can't explain <laughs> it to you. Come on. <laughs> yeah, if I had to make a conjecture, I'd say that like I am more of a fan of hearing fewer jokes rather than a lot, because then I can get more involved in the plot and then the jokes become funnier when they do happen. Whoa, that is very valuable to hear because one of the things that I struggle with in Bridget's and my writing process is if there's even a beat, I have this impulse to fill it with a joke. And one of the guidelines we're trying to work by is to not have to fill every space with a joke. I'm compulsive that way because I want to keep the energy going. And that is the thing that I keep having to learn. I completely identify with that. Is Well, you know, you're a woman who has to work twice as hard as the men, right? That's just how it is. So you always want to be prepared. And I recently got some feedback from my brother because we're co-teaching a class together. And he goes, you don't have to talk the whole time. You can ask them questions. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, God, you're right. I just feel like I have to fill it because that's my job. You have to do the song and dance to make sure everything's okay and everybody's listening and it's all up to you. Not to to project or anything, but... I mean, yeah. But I I do find that I I laugh more if I then get reinvested in the show and then I get pulled back out by something that strikes me as funny. And we do want to hear the plot points. You do need to, people are still trying to go along with what the intended plot is, however lame it is. You know, it's a little different, but the commentary tracks that I used to listen to all the time back when I would rent physical media, you could tell when you had a good rhythm of information versus just watching the movie. And and some, I would watch them a lot. And sometimes it would be just constant chatter. And it's like, I do need to see some of this because I don't really, I just saw the movie once. I need some markers here. And sometimes it would just be these long silences. And you got to say something, pal, because I'm watching this movie a second time. I need something else. As we were preparing for this, I was reminded of a very unusual audio track, a commentary track for the movie Donnie Darko, which was the director, Richard Kelly. I don't know if I have his name right chatting with Kevin Smith, who had nothing to do with the movie. And they were talking about the movie. And it was, I kind of want every, I mean, again, I don't really listen to these anymore, but I want every movie track just to have someone who's not related to it, just talking about it, someone interesting like Kevin Smith. And it was possibly one of the best tracks I had listened to. So you're a, a relative of that, I think. So it's all sort of part of the same thing. It was also hard not to think of pop-up video as we were preparing for this, because that was just another completely different way of interacting with sort of having that all this metadata coming at you. And some of it was just informational, but some of it was just done for yucks and a little too much reading. Sometimes I was not in the mood to engage that part of my brain all the time when I just wanted to be entertained, but... I loved it because I would watch those videos all the time as a kid, right? I would just like watch them over and over. And so to see anything pop up was pretty exciting. But they, I guess you guys were a precursor for that though. Is that right? Like you guys kind of started this formally, I guess started it on television. And then a lot of shows came up that kind of started doing the riffing thing. Pop-up video was uh, taking it to a different format, doing it something that you had to read and not hear. But I think so, that it kind of started a wave, I guess. It's a double-edged sword, I think, that nothing now cannot be commented on. Everything has to be 
And I say that as a person who makes her living at it, who it's basically her career. I have to remember that I can just watch something. I can just take the information as offered. And I don't always have to be putting forth my opinion, even if it is a little joke between lines. Has an MST3K episode been MST3K'd? Like another set of robots commenting on? I don't know. I thought that's what Joel did with a live show last week or so, where they riffed an already riffed movie. I didn't follow it. So it was on top of the... So I don't know. I can answer this. It was a season one episode. So the riffs were less dense. And then the new cast, who are the same robots, but different people doing them, were alongside. So, you know, just like a live out of their little Zoom windows or whatever they were using to create this. And so they would just occasionally comment on the things that the previous casts were saying, more often just filling in the gaps because there were, you know, a lot of room left in those early, those season one ones. You know, it was a little hard to follow that just because of the different volume levels and it wasn't, you know, it was a live event. So there was a little things on top of other things in, in a way that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise. A lot going on. Seems like you're, you're pretty careful not to talk too much over the dialogue because you want people to follow it. Yeah, and it, it sounds very cluttered. And people don't know whether to track the joke or sometimes we do talk over dialogue if it's something really heinous and we, we haven't been able to edit it. So we'll talk over what is being said or the ideas being put forth. I would think for a well-known movie, the rules would be a little different in what you could talk over with the idea that everyone knows what's happening here. Especially when it's highly visual, like when Bridget and I did Gravity, there's a lot of dead space and it's all visual. So there's plenty of room to talk and people see what's going on. You know the premise. That's right. You have done big time Hollywood blockbusters, at least that one, right? Okay. Yeah. I guess that's, that's what I was saying before, that I used to just make, you know, strictly, I will not watch something with a riff if it's a real movie, as opposed to something I just never would never heard of until I've seen it first. But now I've completely broken that, that if it's something that I just don't care that much about. So like watching all the Twilight movies, like that's how I'm watching them with my kids, because I kind of want to have seen the Twilight movies. So Glitter, you know, the ones that you've done, Showgirls, you know, were perfect for that. Like, Probably best to see the Twilight Uber with, if I do say so <laughs> myself, on behalf of my colleagues. There's no way that I'm going to watch those Fifty Shades of Grey or something unless they have Ugh. commentary on them. I'm not sitting through that. But then again, you would have to sit through it, what, nine times? How many times <laughs> do you have to? <laughs> oh, well, at Mystery Science Theater, it was uh, six or seven times with riff tracks, since we're each working individual sections on our own. It's hours and hours and hours. Like I say, I can be intimately familiar with a 10-minute section. Then when I'm watching the whole thing, I'm completely mind-blown. I didn't know that was happening. So he's that guy? Earlier this week, just to see how difficult it would be, I downloaded a public domain short, a 10-minute thing, and I wrote riffs about half of it. Just to see, like, are these any good? Can I do this? I didn't record it. I don't know that I'm going to actually finish it. I don't think it was good enough. But I just wanted to see what that challenge would involve. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, I want to hear it because you like you did quite a bit of riffing during the Korean film. We all, uh, Mary Jo, we all watched a Korean film together on Netflix, like Netflix Party. And uh, Brian and Mark were pretty good with it. 
I gotta say. What was the name of it? <laughs> it was called Lucid Dreams. Lucid Dreams. It's a little different because it was subtitled. So we didn't really have to worry that much about talking while someone was having dialogue because it was on screen. Right. But it was a good one. So actually, you might want to look at it because it was actually pretty decent to riff on, I think. I'd be curious. Absolutely. It's like this filmmaker's homage to Inception. And it just wasn't great. And it was kind of amazing. Understatement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you trying to pick movies that at least are bad in a way that you can tease them, but are not going to actually just torture you? Like, I would think that some of the ones that were actually done with MST... You're not going to do another Danger Red Zone Cuba or what you know, one of those just miserable to watch, terrible sound. No, look, a lot of them, we got what we could on our budget. We kind of took what we could get. And if we could find a decent print, uh, pretty much anything was fair game. That was a lot of the challenge. Did you have anything else to plug? Well, Riff Tracks, and um, I have been so up my butt about... I'm working on a memoir about my mom and I'm hoping to finish it this year. She read a ton. And after she died, we found all these index cards where she kept records of everything she read. And they are so funny, unintentionally funny, just like her opinions on stuff. Like, here's the name of this book. I didn't like the lead character. In one, just to give an example, in one of the books she read, there's the title, there's the date, and then she writes... The author used the word eschatological on page four, so I quit the book. Do not read any more by this. I mean, it's she's so. I'm just. I'm trying to fashion a, a memoir around it and her love of reading and these these wonderful pithy book reviews. So that is. I'm deep with that, Mary Jo. If that doesn't come on page four of your book, I'm going to be deeply disappointed. <laughs> that is a great idea, Brian. Thank you. I'm stealing that. <laughs> Well, I love the idea that it's still humor that is reacting to something that is pre-existing. That just it true, true seems enough. so much easier to me than writing. I don't want to say again. I don't want to say riffing is easy because it's not. It's freaking hard, and to you know make them actually funny. But just having something to react to as opposed to stand up where what you're reacting to the world. <laughs> Do you ever notice that? Yeah, well, I mean, it, that's that's storytelling one way or the other, right? Like, I'm telling a story around something. Uh, if it were stand-up, it's still a story about something. I, I don't know. It's been a delight, you guys. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been great to talk to you. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.